Vienna. Strange and unusual stories from history, literature, myths, and legends. The Oval Portrait by Edgar Allan Poe The chateau into which my valet had ventured to make forcible entrance, rather than permit me in my desperately wounded condition to pass a night in the open air, was one of those piles of commingled gloom and grandeur which have so long frowned among the Apennines, not less in fact than in the fancy of Mrs. Radcliffe. To all appearances, It had been temporarily and very lately abandoned. We established ourselves in one of the smallest and least sumptuously furnished apartments. It lay in a remote turret of the building. Its decorations were rich, yet tattered and antique. Its walls were hung with tapestry and bedecked with manifold and multiformed armorial trophies, together with an unusually great number of very spirited modern paintings in frames of rich golden arabesque. In these paintings, which depended from the walls not only in their main surfaces, but in very many nooks which the bizarre architecture of the chateau rendered necessary, in these paintings my incipient delirium, perhaps, had caused me to take deep interest, so that I bade Pedro to close the heavy shutters in the room, since it was already night, to light the tongues of a tall candelabrum which stood by the head of my bed and to throw open far and wide the fringed curtains of black velvet which enveloped the bed itself. I wished all this done that I might resign myself, if not to sleep, at least alternatively to the contemplation of these pictures and the perusal of a small volume which had been found upon the pillow and which purported to criticize and describe them. Long, long I read and devoutly, devotedly I gazed. Rapidly and gloriously the hours flew by, and deep midnight came. The position of the candelabrum displeased me, and outreaching my hand with difficulty, rather than disturb my slumbering valet, I placed it so it's to throw its rays more fully upon the book. But the action produced an effect altogether unanticipated, the rays of the numerous candles, for there were many, now fell within a niche of the room, which had hitherto been thrown into deep shade by one of the bedposts. I thus saw in vivid light a picture all unnoticed before. It was the portrait of a young girl just ripening into womanhood. I glanced at the painting hurriedly and closed my eyes. Why I did this was not at first apparent, even to my own perception. But while my lids remained thus shut, I ran over in my mind and my reason for so shutting them. It was an impulsive movement to gain time for thought, to make sure that my vision had not deceived me, to calm and subdue my fancy for a more sober and more certain gaze. In a very few moments I again looked fixedly at the painting. That I now saw all right I could not and would not doubt. For the first flashing of the candles upon that canvas had seemed to dissipate the dreamy stupor which was stealing over my senses, 
and to startle me at once into waking life. The portrait, I have already said, was that of a young girl. It was a mere head and shoulders, done in what is technically termed a vignette manner, much in the style of the favorite heads of Sully. The arms, the bosom, and even the ends of the radiant hair melted imperceptibly into the vague yet deep shadow which formed the background of the whole. The frame was oval, richly gilded and filigreed in mosque. As a thing of art, nothing could be more admirable than the painting itself. But it could have been neither the execution of the work nor the immortal beauty of the countenance which had so suddenly and so vehemently moved me. Least of all could it have been that my fancy, shaken from its half-slumber, had mistaken the head for that of a living person. I saw at once that the peculiarities of the design, of the vignetting, and of the frame must have instantly dispelled such idea, must have presented even its momentary entertainment. Thinking earnestly upon these points, I remained for an hour, perhaps, half sitting, half reclining, with my vision riveted upon the portrait. At length, satisfied with the true secret of its effect, I fell back within the bed. I had found the spell of the picture in an absolute life-likeness of expression, which at first, startling, finally confounded, subdued, and appalled me. With deep and reverent awe, I replaced the candelabrum in its former position. The cause of my deep agitation being thus shut from view, I sought eagerly the volume which discussed the paintings and their histories. Turning to the number which designated the oval portrait, I there read the vague and quaint words which follow. She was a maiden of rarest beauty, and not more lovely than full of glee. And evil was the hour when she saw and loved and wedded the painter. He, passionate, studious, austere, and having already a bride in his art, she a maiden of rarest beauty, and not more lovely than full of glee, all light and smiles, and frolicsome as the young fawn, loving and cherishing all things, hating only the art which was her rival, dreading only the palette and brushes and other untoward instruments which deprived her of the countenance of her lover. It was thus a terrible thing to this lady to hear the painter speak of his desire to portray even his young bride. But she was humble and obedient and sat meekly for many weeks in the dark, high turret chamber where the light dripped upon the pale canvas only from overhead. But he, the painter, took glory in his work, which went from hour to hour, from day to day. And he was passionate and wild and moody man who became lost in reveries so that he would not see that the light which fell so ghastly in that lone turret withered the health and spirits of his bride, who pined visibly to all but him. Yet she smiled on, and still on, uncomplainingly, because she saw that the painter, who had high renown, 
took a fervid and burning pleasure in his task and wrought day and night to depict her who so loved him, yet who grew daily more dissipated, more dispirited and weak. And in some time, who beheld the portrait, spoke of its resemblance in low words, as of a mighty marvel, and a proof not less of the power of the painter than this deep love for her, whom he depicted so surpassingly well. But at length, as his labor drew near to its conclusion, there were admitted none into the turret, for the painter had grown wild with his ardor of his work, and turned his eyes from canvas merely even to regard the countenance of his wife. And he would not see that the tints which he spread upon the canvas were drawn from the cheeks of her who sat beside him. And when many weeks had passed, and but little remained to do, save one brush upon the mouth and one tint upon the eye, the spirit of the lady again flickered up as the flame from the socket of a lamp. And then the brush was given, and the tint was placed. And for one moment, the painter stood entranced before the work which he had wrought. But in the next, while he yet gazed, he grew tremulous and very pallid and aghast, and crying in a loud voice, This indeed is life itself! turned suddenly to regard his beloved. She was dead. The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress and termination of the disease, were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the Prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair from without or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatory, 
There were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there were cards, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites have a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here, the case was very different as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished when linen with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet, the seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon the carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations the panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments were there any lamp or candelabrum. Amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof, there was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite to each window a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in its extreme and produced so wild a look upon the countenance of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang and when its minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, 
there came forth from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance, to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzers before ceased their revolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and that the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows, as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled, as if they were at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of 60 minutes, which embraced 3,600 seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock. And then, with the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before, But in spite of all these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the core of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fate, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the costumes of the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There was much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm much of what might have been seen in the Hermani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as an echo to their steps. And anon there strikes the ebony clock, which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then, momentarily, all is still and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and in a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart, 
Now again the music swells and the dreams live and writhe to and fro more merrily than before, taking hue from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly at the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture. For the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life, and the revel went whirlingly on, until at length was sounded the twelfth hour upon the clock, and then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things. But now, there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus again it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before, and the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive at first of disapprobation and surprise, then, finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-herited Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even a prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the heart of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be properly made. The whole company indeed seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed, the figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask, which concealed the visage, was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vestige was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow with all the features of the face was besprinkled with a scarlet horror. When the eyes of the Prince Prospero fell upon the spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, 
stalked to and fro among the waltzers. He was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste, but in the next, his brow reddened with rage. Who dares? he demanded hoarsely of the group that stood around him. Who dares thus make a mockery of our woes? Uncase the varlet that we may know whom we have to hang tomorrow at sunrise from the battlements. Will no one stir at my bidding? Stop him! Strip him, I say, of those reddened vestiges of sacrilege! It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the Prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the Prince with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person, and while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the room to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly round and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untented it by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the Red Death held illimitable dominion
overall. All stories in this episode are by Edgar Allan Poe and are read by my brother, Robert Bilbro. Bob is an actor from the Philadelphia area and has appeared as Poe in a one-man play, which he wrote himself, so he was a perfect choice for a Poe narrator. Bob was also the voice of the Pennsylvania Lottery for a number of years, so he has some pro-voice actor chops. Edgar Allan Poe is one of the best-known, influential, and respected American authors, and a detailed bio is easily accessible from multiple sources online. The Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore is one of the best places to get the full details of Poe's life, as well as a digital copy of most of his prose and poetry. They are at www.eapoe.org. There are also plenty of graphics-heavy bios with spooky soundtracks for Poe on YouTube, from Simon Whistler's biographics to BuzzFeed Unsolved's The Macabre Death of Edgar Allan Poe, and there's plenty more out there. With that in mind, the info we present here is just an outline of Poe's life and is no way a complete bio. Although he lived to the relatively young age of 40, Poe lived a full and varied life, one which was colored by tragedy from the start. He was born in Boston on January 19, 1809. Poe's parents, David and Elizabeth, were poor, traveling actors. They had three children, William Henry, Edgar, and Rosalie. Both parents were dead by December 1811, and Poe was raised by John and Francis Allen of Richmond, Virginia, although they never formally adopted Poe. Edgar and his foster father had a good relationship when he was a boy, but that had soured to the point of hatred by the time Edgar was a young man. Edgar always had a close relationship with his foster mother, Frances, and called her Ma. When Poe was six years old, John Allen moved the family to England while he pursued some business opportunities. Edgar enjoyed his time in the UK and did well in school while there. John Allen eventually moved his family back to Richmond after his London business failed. However, shortly after his return to the States, Allen received a very large inheritance from his uncle and became a very rich man. Despite this newfound wealth, when it was time for Edgar to go to University of Virginia in 1826, Allen didn't provide enough money for Poe's expenses. Edgar famously burned his furniture for heat at that time. Poe eventually had to leave the school and to start making his own money due to his and Allen's increasing estrangement. Poe joined the army in 1827 under the false name of Edgar A. Perry. He served in Boston at Fort Independence. He did well but received the highest rank he could as a non-com, which was Sergeant Major of Artillery, so Poe decided to end his enlistment early and to go to West Point to further his military career in July 1830. Poe's foster mother, Frances, died in 1827, and this may have prompted Allen to help his foster son out one last time. Allen helped Poe get out of the army and into West Point, but by February 1831, Poe intentionally got himself court-martialed so that he could leave the military behind for good. Allen had remarried by that time, and Poe may have been trying to strike out against his foster father for marrying so soon after the death of his first wife, Frances. Poe then moved to Baltimore and lived with his brother, William Henry, his aunt, Maria Clem, and his cousin, Virginia. William Henry would be dead five months after Poe moved in with him, but the brothers had become close during the time they spent together. They had been raised in separate households, but shared a love for writing and even explored some of the same themes in their writings. 
both thought the death of a beautiful woman to be the quote-unquote best subject for poetry, and Poe's nautical tales such as MS Found in a Bottle, Descent into a Maelstrom, and a narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket may have been inspired by his brother's adventures as a young sailor. Henry himself had written a fictionalized account of Edgar and his first love in a short story called The Pirate. He may have also been instrumental in getting Poe's very first book of poems, Tamerlane and Other Poems, published. After his brother's death, Edgar was determined to make a living for himself as a writer. In 1833, his short story, MS Found in a Bottle, won a prize from the Baltimore Saturday Visitor, and this slight fame brought him to the notice of wealthy and influential people in the publishing business. He would eventually find work as an assistant editor or literary critic at various magazines, but he wasn't the best employee and didn't stay with any publication for very long. In May 1836, Poe married his 13-year-old cousin, Virginia Clem. He was 27 at the time. Virginia did seem happy in the relationship as far as anyone outside of it could tell, but even in the early 19th century, marrying your 13-year-old first cousin was frowned upon. Virginia would unfortunately die about 10 years after the wedding at the age of 24 from tuberculosis in 1847. Poe became a well-known writer and critic in the United States, but it wasn't until the publication of his poem The Raven in 1845 that Edgar Allan Poe became a household name and he started to gain international attention, although this didn't come with any great increase in wealth. Poe was paid $9 for The Raven. It would be published in both Britain and France, but not under Poe's name. Copyright laws were hard to enforce internationally at that time, if they existed at all. Eventually, the true author's name would be revealed, and Poe's fame and following increased, particularly in France. Poe's writing career continued to have its ups and downs. He constantly seemed to be on the verge of falling apart. He wrote some of the best-known poems and short stories in American literature during those turbulent years. He dabbled in speculative fiction, such as the facts in the case of M. Valdemar, and the unparalleled adventures of One Hand's Fall. He invented the detective story with Murderers in the Rue Morgue, and the purloined letter. And he is, of course, known for his tales of the macabre, such as The Cask of Amontillado, The Black Cat, and The Telltale Heart. Poe had become a bit of a lost soul after Virginia's death, but he did seem to be trying to turn his life around. He had several relationships with various women, some of whom were themselves well-known authors. And by 1849, he seemed to be on the verge of marrying his childhood sweetheart, Sarah Elmira Royster. However, this was not meant to be. Poe was found in a gutter in Baltimore in October 1849. He was delirious and wearing someone else's clothes. He died a few days later without regaining any real coherence, and his cause of death is still a mystery. All sound production for this episode is by Bob Familiar. Music for The Oval Portrait is by Mantray, a musical duo out of Philadelphia. Music for The Mask of the Red Death is by Bob Familiar. And as previously stated, all readings are by Bob Bilbro. Jim Bilbro basically sat back and watched it happen. This has been Ambient Arcana. Ambient Arcana.